This is Queen Victoria. Welcome to Murder Lab, where I dissect serial killers and analyze what I find. Today's episode is quite exciting because we got to finally interview Glenn Stout, whom we met at CrimeCon recently in Texas. I'm sure you heard that episode, and if you didn't, go back and listen to that episode so you can hear about our meeting with Glenn Stout. He wrote the book Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid, which is the subtitle is America's Original Gangster Couple. It's about this couple in the 1920s that had jewelry heists and major jewelry heists. And it talks about how they, they are a rise and fall and all of that good stuff in between. It was a pleasure to meet him. He was wonderful and warm and it felt like we had known each other forever. We finally got to do the interview with him. It was a pretty good Zoom call. I know sometimes uh, Zoom, you, you don't always know, but we had a nice conversation. He did have to drop out at one point and come back in. There were a couple of interesting things that happened, like I had a set curtain behind me and my dog started to knock it over and we were on video with each other. So all of a sudden I raised my arms as the, <laughs> the dark blue curtains started to fall on me and he makes a comment that I look like bat man so or bat girl so the comment about if i why i look like batman is because my curtain was falling and i look like i had sprouted wings there's also a, a moment when my cat decides to get in front of the camera so there's a few little uh, interesting things that happen that it's important to let you know what happened since you don't get to see it like we got to see real fast i'm going to read a couple excerpts from the book because i think it's it's a, just a phenomenal book and i think it'll be good for you to Here's some things to understand why you need to read it as well. He does a great job at explaining why we need to care about Tiger Girl and Candy Kid and how they represent the era. So here's a quick little paragraph. Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid are not important because of the crimes they committed, the lives they took, or even, really, their relationship. Their story is no simple romantic coupling. It is the torrid romance of an entire era, one that only matters for the glimpse it offers into a time and place, America in transition at the end of the progressive era, hurtling headlong and head down into the jazz age, a time when everything was changing so fast and revealing so many obvious contradictions and inequalities that what made sense yesterday did not make sense today, and no one quite knew what tomorrow might bring. Just as the lives and crimes of Bonnie and Clyde Parker provided minutes into the Depression era, when desperate times drove people to ever more desperate measures, Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid punch a ticket into the Roaring Twenties. He also offers insight into the relationship between Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid, and here's an excerpt about that. It was love, or at least lust, for something more than what they had. Dizzy over each other and drunk on an era, they dove together headlong into the sordid depths of this new world. Maybe Margaret thought she could save her husband. Maybe Richard thought he could take her away to a better place. Maybe together they could both be more than what they were alone. She was impressionable and eager, and as she later said, trying to explain all that happened next, I wanted a good time. He's given me one and all these lovely clothes. So you can see it doesn't just boil down to something simple. It truly is a bigger picture. And then along with their romance and their activities as a couple, they also did have a gang around them. And again, this isn't just like, here's a, here's a story about a gang. It goes deeper than that. And here's a quick little excerpt from, about the gang itself. It wasn't so much that any single thing the gang was doing was so revolutionary. They were hardly the first to time out jobs or use lookouts or make arrangements with the fence in advance. But their discipline, consistency, and unbridled ambition were unique. 
It was the equivalent of assembly line robbery, repeatable and potentially infinite in scope. So I'll tell you, when he talks about some of the things the gang does, it blew my mind. And it was really intriguing reading. So everything about the gang and about the couple, everything was really interesting. And it really did put you in that time period. So that gives you a little background on what the book is about and what's going on. I really recommend that you read it. We don't really have too many spoilers in in here, so you can read it. You can listen to this episode and then read the book. I highly encourage you to get Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid. It is available on Amazon.com. You can actually go to glennstout.com, and he has a couple links to different places you can get his book. Um, I say get it whatever format you can. Get it in all the formats. Definitely check that out, and then also check out other things he's written. He's also written sports stuff, and we'll talk about some other things that he's done. So make sure you check out Glenn Stout. I cannot say enough good things about him. He's just a really good guy. I wish that he was my neighbor, but unfortunately he is not. So I'll I'll take reading his books and talking to him sometimes on Zoom. Glenn Stout. Good to see you. Good to see you too. Thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. Yeah, we're real excited. We've been uh, talking about this ever since we met at CrimeCon. (laughs) Oh, nice. Yeah, we appreciate you uh, taking time out to do this. Oh, no trouble at all. It's, uh, you know, part of the... Part of what you have to do when you do a book. So. Oh, I, I got you. It. Good. Good. Uh, yeah. Well, and that's coming one out of the... the pandemic, you don't get to talk to people very often. <laughs> right. Yeah, unless it's this way. So yeah. Right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> um, so um, I do have a rough outline that we'll go through, but we'll kind of, you know, just do it as it goes. But first, sure. If you don't mind, I'm going to fangirl out for a minute about <laughs> things that I really liked about the book. So if you can handle some compliments. Fangirl away. I appreciate it. I'm sure. (laughs) Any enthusiasm is appreciated. (laughs) Believe me, when you're in the book business. Oh, yeah. Um, So you were really great at captioning, capturing and explaining the impact that Tiger Girl and Candy Kid had on, well, on everything that went into why they had an impact and why they became such a big deal. And um. It was just, it was amazing to me how you just made it so obvious and vivid. So, well, you know, I, I, I think, I think I sensed from the beginning that I had to put them in a time and a place. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's just me saying who they were and how important they were. Right. Once you put them in the time and the place, then, then the readers will buy them. You know, if you mm-hmm. just throw them in there without context, it doesn't mean a whole lot. Right. And you you were really good at, like I said, you were amazing at capturing all that and really driving that point home without it being like overstated or anything like that. I also really enjoyed the colorful way you had of phrasing things. And if you don't mind, I have a couple little excerpts. So sure. um, you mentioned children. I roaming. like it when people say I can write. <laughs> Not, yeah, I'm sure it's helpful. <laughs> um you say children were roaming the streets in a sidewalk version of social Darwinism. And I just love that image. It just paints this perfect picture where you're not mm-hmm. just saying, okay, different kids were doing the, you know, it's, it's mm-hmm. just very vivid. Um, another thing was he witnessed just how easy it was to kill from the end of a gun and how flood, how a flood of money seemed to justify the flow of blood. And I love that imagery where you have the, the flood of money and the flow of blood. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed that. And then the last one I will say, there are many, but the last one that I'll mention is the Candy Kid's silver tongue would work overtime spending so much yarn, he could have knit a sweater for every guy in the tombs. Mm-hmm. 
I think maybe Glenn froze up on us here. Maybe. <laughs> or else he's just verklempt. <clears throat> he's so uh, overwhelmed with emotion. Oh, Andy's and gone. lost him. Okay. <laughs> He'll call back in, hopefully. Yeah. We're back. All right. Yay. <laughs> yeah. We've got thunderstorms here, so. Oh, no. Okay. Hopefully, oh. cross our fingers that this will stick. Oh, yes. Um, so what was the last thing you heard? Because I want to make sure you heard all the compliments. Well, yes, <laughs> uh, uh, of course I heard the compliments. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, okay. I, I said, uh, uh, I remembered, um, well, that I had to put it in context. And the second one was about the... Um, flood of money to justify the flow of blood. The, yeah, the flood of money. I think that was a real turning point for him. Mm -hmm. Because previous to that, he really hadn't killed people. Mm -hmm. Right. And all of a sudden, he realized, hey, I can, and it really doesn't bother me. Right. And, uh, you know, I don't identify him in the book as like a sociopath. Mm -hmm. It's sort of clear that he was. <laughs> <Yeah>. Right. Um, <laughs> because the last year, you know, when the option was shoot somebody or find another solution, you know, he pulled out the gun. Right. Oh, yeah. Well, and then even when he says, yeah. uh, when he kills that security guard, when he says, well, it was his life or mine, and mine was more valuable. Yeah, I mm -hmm. mean, it's it's a calculation with him. He's like, mm -hmm. me or somebody else. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the, that's the way it went. Yeah. Um, so I noticed that there are very specific things in the book that caught my attention, like the Bertillon system and the teleautograph. Yeah. Now, those personally fascinated yeah. me because I had never heard of those. So it was right, I had either. Mm -hmm. Did you already know about those things from other research or did you uncover that stuff during this book? Well, I knew about the Bertillon system. I knew that that's what pre-existed fingerprints in terms of a way to identify people. Hmm. Um, you know, and the Bertillon system is this, you know, you measure your head, you measure your forearm, the length of your fingers. Everybody's supposed to be unique. They're not. It's mm -hmm. pretty close, but they're not. Uh, mm -hmm. The teleautograph, I had never heard of that before. Right. And it took me a long time <laughs> to find online what that was. Mm -hmm. It existed from about the teens into the <laughs> 1960s. Really? And wow. um, yeah, I was stunned by it. And, you know, it's before copy machines, before mm -hmm. faxes, but mm -hmm. they could still transmit electrical impulses that could mm -hmm. then be untranslated and through a series of dots or whatever it was do a message so if you knew somebody's handwriting you were sure it was them mm, yeah that's and, amazing uh, yeah it was used in hotels and it was used in uh in offices to communicate between floors hmm. and i just thought one of the newspapers I, I couldn't reproduce it in the book but one of the newspapers had reproduced one of those teleautographs mm. from margaret oh wow yeah, you know that's just yeah that's yeah. just it's just like oh <laughs> yeah, yeah my boyfriend uh because i told him as soon as i got to that passage and he automatically looked it up and he showed me a picture of what it looks like you know and it just it blew my mind i had no idea they had anything like that mm -hmm. so that's one of the things that i really yeah. like that you include those details and they're not throwaway details like that right. is how would they communicate you know that is an important mm -hmm. thing that is really interesting just like with the ripping the 50 or the the bill in half so they would know yeah. that it was each other like things like that are just really interesting details that really help flesh out that universe or that time period in the no, environment I, I, and everything. I, I, well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love going into detail. 
I think it's something I've learned over time is to make judicious use of detail. Mm. Don't just throw in detail for detail's sake. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Have it contribute something. And that's the that's the measuring stick you use mm -hmm. with any detail. I mean, I could have thrown in a lot more details, but <laughs> mm -hmm. they didn't really matter. These were yeah. the kinds of ones that really matter that say something either about the people mm -hmm. or about the time period. That's right. kind of the measuring stick. Yeah, and I think you definitely did a good job of that. Um, so there, there were also a lot of uh, what the fuck moments. So like during <laughs> heist and the trial and like when he punches that lady to get her. Yes. Rape, like that mm -hmm. shocked me. So there were several moments to the point where I was uh, reading and I was eating chips and I realized that I, it was like I was at a movie theater eating popcorn. It's, I was just like <laughs> riveted. And my boyfriend tried to talk to me. I'm like, no. I meant, you know, yes. there were a lot of moments like that where it just really was like, oh my God. So um, as you were uncovering more and more details, so I figure it must've been really exciting in all your exhaustive research when you found those moments where things started to get interesting and started to click. And I was curious, was it pretty steady finding the information that was interesting or was there kind of gaps where it was kind of like, oh God, I haven't really found anything. And then you'd find a gold mine or? Well, you know, the research of the book took place over a long period of time. A lot of it back in about, you know, 2008, 2009, when I first came across mm. the story. Mm -hmm. So there's a flood of research there to see if I have uh. a story. And, and I was convinced I did, and then I couldn't get anybody to buy it. <laughs> so then it was kind of fits and starts mm -hmm. um, where I would keep on going back and I would keep on finding more. And what I loved is the fact that these details were sort of cinematic you could see them. Mm -hmm. I oh, yeah. wouldn't just have to tell somebody about it, but you would be able to see the story because mm -hmm. when you have a wealth of reporting, which I had, um, that's how, you know, as I think I explained this in the talk I gave, you kind of layer the information. You get mm -hmm. some from here, you get a little more from here, a little more from here, and it creates this 3D portrait. And then of course, when I went in deeply into it um, for like the two years, that it basically took me to write the book, then, you know, one, I'm alerted to those things. I'm looking for them. And two, I'm just, I'm gathering as much as I could, every single piece of information I could find because I can't interview anybody. Right, There's right. No police right. record, mm. you know, so you got to grab everything. And yeah, when you see something that is unique and cinematic and visual, you grab it. The 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 Leona Leo, Leona Castle when he punches her in the face. Mm. This is like because believe me, I looked to make sure that <laughs> to see if he was you know abusing Margaret. Mm. There's no That's, hint yeah. of that anywhere. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I've got some more information on that that I've learned since too. Mm. But like that 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 when he punches the woman in the face and. You know, she was interviewed by the cops. I mean, all the quotes are real. And mm. the cops, you know, this is what happened. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And it's just kind of like out of nowhere. And it sort of so shows you just how callous this guy mm. could be. Definitely. And, and yeah. the violence that was like right there when he needed mm. it. And it didn't bother him. No, and the, the thing is- Like no like problem. Right. It, it ramped up. You know what I mean? It kind of ramped up and what his thinking, like you said, kind of changed until it was like, oh, well, I can I can do this. This is an answer. Yeah, he, he discovered that he had no, you know, he had no conscience. 
Right. You know, he might have thought he had no conscience when he was younger. <laughs> he got older. He's like, guess what? I don't have one. Yeah. Mm. Proven it. Yeah. I'll do I'll do whatever yeah. it takes. Yeah. And until yeah. then, it was before then, it was almost like, oh, the, them with their kooky hijinks, like, you know, coming in mm. behind the safe and, you know, stealing right under people's noses. It was almost I don't know. It was it was kind of fun, you know, even though people were getting ripped off. And then all of a sudden he punches her and it's real. It yep. feels like like it's a real thing and that's really affecting people, you know, and I thought mm-hmm. it was also interesting. You mentioned how the media wasn't really covering the victims. So mm-hmm. I like that you kept right. back to that because there were real people. It was a real thing. So I think you were really good. Right. And I wanted to make that. that. I, yeah, I wanted to make that point early that I recognize these were real people that I'm not. I mean, any book is exploiting any story, but I wasn't exploiting the story without the consideration of what right. that all meant. Right. Right. Um, yeah. So I made that point early and I, I tried to kind of keep coming back. But since the media didn't give you much information about the victims, uh, I mean, the one uh, uh, bank guard that's killed, you know, his obituary and funeral is on like the 26th page Mm. of the Rochester Mm -hmm. newspaper. They didn't care. That's not what sold back then. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, today, obviously, if you were to write the story, and, and I think we're in an age where a lot of true crime books right now are victim focused. Mm hmm almost too much, I think, because there's no discussion of the crime at all. It's all about the victims. Mm-hmm. And there's a certain voyeur, victim voyeurization mm-hmm. in that that I find a little exploitive because it's under mm. this veneer of, oh, we're so concerned about the victims. But at the same time, we'll, we'll release the, the most horrible information about the victims and the most, uh, mm. uh, you know, uncomfortable visuals about the oh, victims. Oh, yeah. But yeah. we're only writing about the victims because the, the you know, mm. and I'm of the, of the ilk, too, that like, hey, if we're talking about crime, you better examine the person who did it well, and yeah. why they did it mm-hmm. Yeah. if you want to come to any understanding mm-hmm. of what this is about. But, but, but I, so I didn't want to avoid that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I also didn't want to get out of the time period too much. Mm-hmm. That's why I never identify him as a sociopath. Right, right. I want to stay in the time right. period. I don't oh, want to break sure. that little spell. No, yeah. And you did actually, now that you mentioned it, you did a really good job at that. And right. I always felt like I was, you know, steeped in that time period. And um, my mind just went blank. <laughs> I was going to make up. It happens to me all the time. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, I'm glad that you answered that question. Uh, You mentioned that, Glenn, because that was my question was, how did you feel the representation in the media would be today? And you answered that for me, that you feel like it's, it definitely is more victim focused, maybe a little too much, but um, definitely they talk more about the victims. Uh, What about the representation of women? Because um, I don't, see how a lot has changed as far as they concentrated on what they what margaret wore and what you know and right. and those type of things so do you think that's changed a lot or no uh well i think it is i think it's changed some i mean one of the i don't know if i could characterize it as a battle that i had with um i won't even call this person an editor it was the person that edited the book and we did not see eye to eye mm. but one of the things that I had to point out is this person who was much younger had mm-hmm. the expectation that, you know, where are all the stories that delve into Margaret's past and, you know, her psychology and her upbringing and everything. And I had to explain to them, 
they didn't, there, you know, the chauvinism of the age in journalism mm -hmm. did not value women in that way. Mm -hmm. They did not explore that aspect of her. Right. And, you know, so I had to explore that aspect of her kind of through the side, through the mm -hmm. cultural context and look at her as a woman of the time period. Right. You know, because there wasn't that, you know, uh, 4,000 word article in uh, Vanity Fair that told you how Margaret walked and talked and how she thought mm. and where she mm -hmm. went to school and how bad her mother was for her. Mm -hmm. There wasn't that. There was much more of that kind of thing about Richard, you mm -hmm. know, not the way it would be done today, but there was some of it. But Margaret was kind of seen uh, and women in general were kind of seen as cutouts mm -hmm. and, you know, flappers gone bad. That's a mm -hmm. trope. Yep. And they love that trope and readers yep. love that trope because, mm -hmm. you know, bad girls turned by a bad guy. Yep. Um, so, you know, I tried to kind of bring that out to let people know that some of the reasons why some things aren't in this is because that they weren't, no one asked those questions mm -hmm. back then. Right. Yeah, and, and know, that's actually was, what was I was going to uh, comment on was that I like that you mentioned that, that you make a point to say they mm -hmm. did not say things about women, that you brought up that was another thing. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, so you, that definitely explained some things and, and it really caught more of that time period and that culture. Right. So I really liked how you, you know, mentioned that as well. Um, yeah, I wanted people to, to sit in the pocket of the mid-1920s. Mm -hmm. and see this unfurl before them, you know, and yeah. let them know enough about the 1920s, because I think in some ways we're sort of in an ahistorical age. Uh, a lot of people don't know a lot of history mm -hmm. and a lot of things that I might think everybody should know, people don't. Mm -hmm. And so there's this calculation, how much do I need to give them I don't want to give them too much. Yeah. You don't want to take yeah, the that... people that know it mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. make them think, you know, geez, geez, I know this. I'm going to flip through these pages. It's, it's, it's a real fine line to, mm. to try to hit. Oh, yeah, know? I can imagine. And, uh, yeah, I didn't think of and that. I think there's people on both sides. Some say, oh, there's too much history in here. And other people are like, oh, there's not enough. <laughs> you know, you can't <laughs> mm -hmm. satisfy everybody. Oh, no. Right. But I think it was a great balance, yeah. personally. I do, too. Um, Thank I you. I have a quick uh, observation. So at the end, it mentions that Richard Whittemore published a story in the paper. So recently yeah. I did an episode on John Reginald Christie, who was a strangler in 1950s London. And he actually, uh, the he, he paid for his defense by selling his story to a newspaper. And sure. it actually caused a big problem because some people were like, he should not be making money off of what mm -hmm. he did. And at that point, they were like, well, that's they, they basically were like, it doesn't matter. It's not illegal. So it's we're not it's his right. constitutional right or whatever, which I think is interesting because we know. I mean, I imagine, you know, about the son of Sam Laws that happened after Sam Berkowitz, sure. you know, sold his story. So I know it, it became like a really big issue later. But I think it's really interesting to see that when John Reginald Christie did it, people had a problem with it. But when Richard Whittemore did it, there was that uh, dichotomy of you have people who are rooting for him, mm -hmm. you know, and then you have some people who think he's just your typical bad, bad guy. But it's interesting that there were so many people that were actually on board with him and saw him as a sympathetic character. Yeah, there was there was there were very few um, stories that even raised the issue of whether it was appropriate for him to sell his story. Mm -hmm. um, and there were also relatively few that raised much of an issue with the way the public reacted to him 
because of course the newspapers were benefiting from right. the fact that a large part of their constituency was going, yeah, you know, you know, Buying those papers. who cares that he killed people? Mm -hmm. Buy the papers, mm -hmm. sell it every day. Right. So they were trying to find a high line. And then of course, after he's hung, they try to, they try to be a little cute with it mm. and say, oh, or after the trials, like, oh, this is terrible the way people reacted. While, mm. you know, for the previous couple of weeks, all they did, <laughs> all they did was exploit it. Um, it was surprising to me to find the degree to which he was lionized by other younger working class men and women. Mm -hmm. um, it's understandable to a degree if you put yourself in that time period and realize that there wasn't this kind of slavish devotion to authority right. that we have now mm -hmm. and this elevation of the police into this you know, almost unassailable position mm -hmm. of being heroes. Yeah, and um, I, I think you did a great uh, job at also underlining that like when they had him and then he said, yeah, I can testify, but I can also name names of people, other people who are at that club and mm -hmm. doing illegal things. And you're, and it shows that thin line between who were the good guys, who were the bad guys, who were, mm -hmm. and it's exactly, it is so important is when people look at history that they have the right context. So a lot of times it will run into things right. like serial killers where they're like, oh, well, in this time period, oh, it's terrible, they did it this way. Well, you know what? Maybe they did it this way, but that's how they did it that way. Is when we look at it now, that's how culture is now. So it's important, not that it makes everything okay, but it's really important to see things how they were in that context. Mm -hmm. Right, and, and even, you know, um, the prosecutor in Baltimore, who's like, you know, basically a boy scout Mm. You know, he's also playing the political game <laughs> at the mm -hmm. same time. Yeah, he's mm -hmm. kind of a Boy Scout, but he's got his calculation in there. Yep. You know, he's looking for higher office. He ended up getting there. Richard Whittemore was part of the reason. Um, mm -hmm. So in a, in a funny way, like almost no one comes off clean. Mm -hmm. You know, right. almost mm -hmm. anybody in this doesn't come off squeaky clean. Everybody was, you know, they were playing in the same sandbox. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't a clean sandbox. Mm -mm. Um, and it wasn't a clean time. Mm -mm. You know, it really, it really, really wasn't. Mm -hmm. I, I just find, you know, I've always found that the 20s fascinating. And, and this book, because uh, I have touched in the 20s on other books, but this book kind of really got into that more. Mm -hmm. So that's what kept it interesting for me. Mm. Okay. Yeah. And, Is and that... I, sorry, I thought I really did not realize that police really beat people with a rubber hose i thought it was a joke or like you know so like i've heard oh, no. that phrase and i thought it was yeah so when i saw that in the book i was like oh my god <laughs> like i did i didn't yep, realize it, how bad really that was yeah yeah i didn't realize yeah, how well, much that's, they the, did that. that's the one uh, transcript that i had was because the kramer brothers filed an appeal mm -hmm. um the transcript of their trial was was reprinted by the state of New York in one of those, you know, you know those big legal volumes you see behind mm -hmm. lawyers' offices. And I'm looking through there and there's uh, Tony Pallas, Anthony Palladino, openly talking about being beaten up. And there, and it's like, yeah, wow. what, so, so what? You know, and even the press at the time, you know, there are allusions to it in the press mm -hmm. that like, you know, they could hear the screams coming from the other room mm -hmm. and, it, and they were not horrified. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's the great quote by the guy that's from the cop. It's like, well, you got to treat them like animals. You know, because, I mean, because that was are. justice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. That was justice, mm -hmm. you know, and justice means different things at different times. Oh, sure. Yep. Uh, yes. So I think it's, it's, it's edifying. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Oh, right. It's edifying in, in those terms is that you, you see that it's a sliding, the, the morality is a sliding scale mm -hmm. in society. Yeah. What's acceptable and what's not. And, right. uh, you know, I'm glad you guys are asking these questions because nobody else really has oh. about <laughs> Yay. that aspect. Yeah, no, that aspect of the book that, mm -hmm. that uh, you know, because that's what you really want to get into when you do a book like this is to expose what a time was like. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And that's what this is about more than Margaret and Richard. It's about what a time was like mm -hmm. and what was possible in a time. Right. And why it was possible in a time. Yep. And... Uh, you know, they're unique, but crime wasn't unique then. Mm. Um, <laughs> exploitation <Right. laughs> wasn't unique then. Mm -hmm. And yeah. they're just, uh, you know, they're just, uh, there's a writer that I admire, a guy named Lawrence Wright, who writes for the, for the uh, uh, New Yorker. And I saw him talk once and he said, every story needs a donkey. And that's a character that can carry you through. Oh, and in a sense, like Richard and Margaret are a donkey mm -hmm. that carries you through this time. And if you follow yeah. them through this time, you end up with this picture of the 1920s. That's not the great Gatsby. Right. And that's oh, most yeah. of what people know about the 1920s right. is mm -hmm. the great Gatsby. <laughs> right. they, they, they put it in that box. Well, these are the people that the great Gatsby, they wanted to be, you know, mm -hmm. right. to be those people. <laughs> they could party with them, they but then they'd have to go out in the like, heist. You know, yeah. 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 They weren't bored with it like Tom and Daisy. And it's like, oh, gee, mm -hmm. you know, what do we do with our money? What do we do with our time? Oh, no, right. that's what we want. You know, right. we'll get bored with it later. Maybe. But 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 give us give us that. You know? Right. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. And it's yeah, you just did a, a wonderful job on it. And I noticed that um, because we're Facebook friends that you've been posting some of the reviews. Yep. And I did see one where someone compared it to Eric, compared you to Eric Larson and our what we call our fans are lab rats would know Eric Larson from The Devil in the White City, which is about sure. H. Holmes. It's a great book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that is a, a fantastic comparison. And yes. I'm sure that was I mean, are, are you familiar with Eric Larson's work? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, okay. absolutely. And you know, I, and I appreciate comparisons like that. I, I think you know, I like to think maybe I did it better than than he would. But you know, you 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 want the your book to be attached to other kind of classics. You hope that people see that in the same vein. Mm -hmm. um, some people do. You know, it's funny. I've, as of all the books that I've done, this in many ways has probably been the best received critically. Mm -hmm. um, um, not quite so much sales-wise yet, although hmm. you really don't know because other things can happen. Right. But all you can do is do the best you can mm -hmm. and and put it out there. And if and if people, you know, see it as like this was as compelling as Eric Larson, who's of course extraordinarily popular, you know, that, that makes me very, very happy. And um, it's been, you know, there's more than one person that said that, whether it's in a public review or rather in a private review and like Goodreads or or something like that. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's very gratifying to see that kind of reception. I will say one thing, the people that love this book really like this book. Right. You know, they really love this book. I just want more people to become aware of it. Right. Um, that's, the, that's the real challenge with selling a book, not only post pandemic, but, mm. but really selling a book in the past uh, 
five or 10 years, mm. it's a different environment than it yeah. was selling books when I started writing books 30 years ago. It's much, much harder to break through. Mm. Right now, there are the books that are the 1% that sell gazillions of copies, mm -hmm. and then everybody else. The middle, which is kind of where I lived for a long time, has gotten a lot smaller. Mm. And, uh, you know, quite frankly, 25, 30 years ago, it was pretty easy to sell 20,000 books. Really? Mm. Today, it's really hard to sell mm. 20,000 books. I would Everything think things like hundreds of thousands. Everything sells hundreds of thousands or less than 10. Mm. There's no middle. Hmm. That's almost gone. I would think that something like CrimeCon was a big boost. And, you know, I see like Amazon. I mean, I, I purchased three formats. <laughs> I've got the book. I've got the, I listened to the audio book and I've got the Kindle. <laughs> Uh, because I forgot it when I went somewhere and I needed to read it. Uh, so, um, but yeah, I can, I can see that, but it's unfortunate. Yeah. It's just a, you know, we're, we're in a different time period. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, and I'm as bad as anybody, you know, we're all looking at this all the time mm -hmm. and uh, it's hard to get people to buy books and, and kind of post pandemic people really aren't in bookstores yet. Yeah, they're really not in movie theaters yet. Right. Yeah. Still so mine, new in a way. I had a friend yeah. of mine who went mm. to see Black Widow the other the other night in a theater that seated 270 people on opening night at 7:30, and there were 36 people there. Wow. Wow. Yeah. You know, and yeah. bookstores are sort of the same way. People aren't browsing quite the way they used to. Right. So you're well, trying to get at them different ways. Right. Well, and then plus with um, a big portion <coughs> of the country losing their jobs, you mm -hmm. know, people, you know, money's kind of tighter. Sure. So I'm sure once things start to balance out, you know, it's it, it does it is hard right now. Um, as far as the comparing you to Eric Larson, I've only read um, Devil in the White City by him, mm -hmm. and I will say yeah. that you have the advantage of tiger girl and candy kid is a sexier story mm. and so, yeah, so it's it's um it's a little bit of an easier read it's not quite a, it's the world's fair <laughs> just isn't as sexy <laughs> i mean it's interesting to read about how the ferris wheel was made and it was very interesting from a historical perspective but you know there was also a lot of and then they had to do this and then the building right. contractors had to meet there so were a lot of as yeah. side stories to paint that and, picture right and honestly you, yeah yeah, and honestly, there are moments when I'm like, is he going to get back to H.H. Holmes? Because I want to mm -hmm. know about H.H. Holmes. Right. So um, so there was kind of a difficult balance with that. And I think that um, that your writing compared with well, that, this is, matter, it was a perfect blend. Mm -hmm. This is a romance at right, its heart. Right, Yeah, you know? true. I mean, as, as sort of twisted as it, as it is. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you guys this, uh, because I think it's fascinating. And I haven't had the opportunity to tell anybody else. But since the book was published, I've heard from someone who knew Tiger Girl. Oh, really? How old is that person? Wow. 84. <laughs> um, I don't reveal purposely, if you read all the way to the end and the end notes and everything, I don't reveal the end of her story in its entirety mm -hmm. because Margaret's daughter from her second marriage is still alive. Mm. She would oh, be nine, wow. 90 years old now. Wow. And I didn't want to, and I did make contact through an intermediary with her. She chose not to participate. And mm -hmm. I didn't, I was very cautious. I don't know what she knew. If I didn't know what she knew, if anything. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
And I didn't want to intrude on the life of somebody whose life is nearly over, who's in a facility. Oh, yeah. Right. Uh, she was offered the opportunity to contribute if she wanted. She very politely said no. But I have since heard from someone who's a little bit younger than her, whose mother lived very nearby Margaret, mm. who was apparently Margaret's only close friend and who remembers her from when she was uh you know an adult a tween an adolescent wow and she told me a number of fascinating things the most fascinating thing is that she one well several a little preamble margaret was always very well put together she said she was a wonderful delightful really nice woman um and but that every sunday a big black car would show up in front of Margaret's house. And Margaret was remarried by this time and had a daughter who was, would have been a teenager. And this car pulled up and it was driven by Mrs. Jack Hart. And if you read the book closely, Jack Hart is another Baltimore gangster of right. the same era. Mm -hmm. Wasn't directly involved with Richard, but served time with him. Mm -hmm. And Mrs. Jack Hart would show up Every Sunday, Margaret would be dressed to the nines. She would get in the car with Mrs. Jack Hart, and she would go to Richard's gravesite. Uh, and this is a direct quote from the woman that wrote me. Mm. And she said, and you know, Margaret, I call him Richard throughout, just for convenience sake, because I didn't want to use a variety of names. Margaret usually called him Reese, which was his right. middle name. Right, I noticed that, yeah. And this... Yeah, and this woman wrote me and she says, she never stopped loving Reese. Wow. Uh, which answered a big question for me mm. because I'd always thought, okay, I didn't find anything about her being beaten up or abused, mm -hmm. or mentally abused or emotionally abused or anything. Mm -hmm. But even after she remarried and had a child, Margaret stuck by him mm, mm. and she would go yeah. to that blank spot. There's no mm. gravestone. Mm. It's a blank spot. And she would go there every Sunday. Wow. In a way, it's not There's surprising so because, because of how you, uh, you know, mention their relationship and how at the end she was with his family. She was with, you know what I mean? And she was so distraught and how even her mother at the funeral um, was saying you broke his neck and you know all that so it, it it's not surprising in a way but if there's a, ever a movie done now oh yeah it might start with margaret showing up in a big black oh. sedan yeah yep. and going i can see to it that blank mm. that blank spot i i wish i would have had it in the book maybe if uh, there's a paperback edition i get to do an epilogue only with the permission of the person that wrote me would I, would I use right. this. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, I suppose I'm giving it away a little bit here. But, <laughs> but that was just really touching to me. The other thing she said, which I thought was just, it just broke my heart a little bit, is that uh, Margaret's daughter was taunted when she was in school mm. by other kids who would say, your mother married a murderer. He was hung. Oh, wow. Uh, wow. And, uh, you know, that's something for a 13, 14 year old girl to have to deal with. Oh, yeah. Wow. Um, but 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 it's funny because the uh, uh, rel I, I was able to find her through a relative of her husband. And they knew 
nothing about this. Mm. They had never known that Margaret had even been married before. Really? And the fellow that I was, yeah, that I was in contact with, he told me that he, he remembered meeting her too. And this is when he was in college and he would, sometimes Margaret would come over and help to clean and cook at his father's house. And sometimes he would have to drive her back and forth. And apparently she was hard of hearing at this point. And he would go get her. And he said it was hard to have a conversation with her because she really couldn't hear. <laughs> but he said, you know, she had a certain spark about her mm-hmm. even then, mm-hmm. you know, she, you know, in a sense, she'd been to the mountaintop. She'd lived the way everybody else had lived. Mm-hmm. And, and then the last thing that, that I think was fascinating is that she told this woman's mother that she ended up with nothing. People thought she ended up yeah. with money. They thought she had diamonds and stuff hidden away. Said she had nothing mm-hmm. at the end of it. Wow. And she did live this incredibly modest life. I mean, mm-hmm. that's not a part of Baltimore you want to live in, uh, mm-hmm. even then, and right. less so now. And that's where Margaret lived uh, uh, almost to the end. I, I think she was uh, in a facility towards the very end. Mm-hmm. But, wow, uh, that's amazing. Can you imagine that life where you, you, were, you were Kim Kardashian and then you were... <laughs> the lady across the I, street uh, i can't help but think of the end of goodfellas when he's in the witness protection program and he's like i asked for spaghetti and they give me you know some noodles with the tomato paste yeah or whatever it's it's, it's <laughs> like that where you're just an everyday schmo so i, I can't imagine exactly. although maybe at that point she had been through so much and she lost you know the man that she loved so maybe it was a little disillusioned so maybe it was mm-hmm. kind of nice well and also you know you'd had a certain life in the 1920s where everybody was living large. Mm-hmm. And then you go through the depression and World War II, right. where everybody's getting, in, everybody's getting in the teeth. Mm-hmm. And you're right. like, well, how funny. am I any different from everybody else? Right, well, and you even mentioned yeah. the book. The other that- funny thing was, was some of the other gangsters like uh, Weinzimmer, who was the driver, mm-hmm. you know, they're all kind of terrible guys. Right. <laughs> Weinzimmer, the driver, his son wins the bronze star during World War II. Okay. Cy hmm. <laughs> Gildan. Fell far from the tree. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah. Cy Gildan, who, you know, Richard probably shot and threw in the churchyard on Liberty Street in, in New York. His son ended up as a scout for the Milwaukee Brewers. <laughs> wow. Wow. So I did research. Very different. I did yeah. research like the families of all these mm-hmm. people just mm-hmm. to see what happened. For sure. In fact, Cy Gildan's wife never remarried, and Cy Gildan's photograph. All right. Yeah. <laughs> My set's falling apart. That's that's you're putting on your bat wings. Uh, <laughs> that's what it looked like. <laughs> she is Batman. Cy Gildan's wife, who and he was only like 22, 23. They were all so young. Cy yeah. Gildan's wife never, re, never remarried. Wow. Oh, wow. And his hmm. her son, who's mentioned in the book, he was an infant, mm-hmm. right. ends up becoming a scout for the Milwaukee Brewers and a well-known figure in Baltimore <laughs> baseball circles. Wow. Like, yeah. Where does that come from? You know, <laughs> yeah. You just never know. I have no idea. Huh. Wow. <laughs> well, that's yeah, pretty You amazing. never know. Um, speaking of, uh, your reviews, I believe that I saw on Facebook that when you were on your flight home from CrimeCon, that you saw someone reading a review in the paper. Really? Yeah, that was really fun. Uh, it had been, I knew it had been reviewed in the New York times in their summer beach reads issue, 
which had appeared online two or three weeks before. I knew it was coming out that day. And of course I had, you know, friends and family like buy the New York Times that day. If you, right. you can find it up here in Vermont. It's like, it's like $15 to get the New York Times <laughs> on Sunday. And uh, it just so happened that I was flying back. I, I flew to Washington and then Washington to Burlington. And I get on the, the last leg of the flight and I see this guy like three or four seats ahead and he's got the times and I'm watching him and watching him and he picks up the book review section and I'm like, I'm watching him, I'm watching him. And then I see he turns to that page and I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stalk this guy. And I shot the picture because, you know, it was fun. Yeah. I've never yeah. come across anybody. Yeah, I've never crossed anybody in the wild reading one of my books before. I've seen them like on the on the back window of a car mm. before. That's about oh, as wow. close as I've gotten. Huh. But 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 he was reading the review. Now, you know, maybe he I don't know if he bought it or not. Maybe he read the review and says, I I'm not gonna like this book, but it was still kind of cool. Oh, and yeah. uh, you know, as I said, maybe a little crime con magic there. Yeah. <laughs> Did you was, say to him, Hey, magic. that's me? <laughs> I would have been like, well, that's me. You know, I didn't want to scare anybody. I can be kind of scary when I'm Put a little that. pressure on him, like, hey, you know, uh, I'll I'll sign that when you buy my book. But it was, it was, you know, the whole reason I was at CrimeCon was that uh, I actually sort of by chance had met Kevin Balf, who runs the whole thing hmm. several years ago, because uh, um, he he was working for somebody else and was doing a book with the groundskeeper of Fenway Park who um, had this terrible experience with PTSD hmm. and uh, they needed sort of a ghostwriter to help him. And I was recruited to help this other guy write the book. And that's when I met Kevin. And then sort of by chance, I stumbled across the fact that Kevin was behind CrimeCon. And I, you know, I approached him, I said, hey, what do you think? And he's like, you know, we don't do a whole lot of true crime history. Let's mm -hmm. give it a shot. It probably helped that, you know, it was a little smaller this year and they, Mm -hmm. Probably had some people back out. I don't know, but but I really enjoyed it. I mean, I don't know yeah. how many people showed up my event, 150 or so. That's great. I certainly enjoyed it, and it was an opportunity to um, to counter program a little bit at CrimeCon, which is more mm -hmm. focused on the present mm. and certain kinds of crimes. This is not the kind of crime most people at CrimeCon are interested in. Mm. Um, so it was fun. I like to do old old timey crime is what I call it. I, I really look I really like to find that out just um, just because it does paint a different picture and it does give a different perspective. And in, in a way, it reiterates how things just really don't change, you know, and it's it's not always heartening. But, you know, I just right. like to see, I just like uh, those type of books. Yeah. And I, well, I, you know, it's they're hard to do because mm -hmm. you don't have the people to interview. Right. You don't have the same kind of primary resource material. That's why there's not as many of them. They're hard to do. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of work. It can be frustrating for somebody like me. In fact, there was even one guy on Goodreads and I, I even communicated with him because he talked about how I made it everything up. <laughs> I'd make up what? all the dialogue because it's just, because it's just not, it's just not available. And as it turned out, and he was relatively apologetic. He'd listened to the book on tape. And of course, you listen to it on tape. It doesn't have the mm -hmm. end notes. Right. It doesn't explain that, you know, 
Um, you know, every quote is from a source. Mm. Now, if that source lied, if a newspaper made up a quote, I'm sort of not responsible. For right. Uh, mm. I don't mm -hmm. think they made up a lot of quotes. I think they might have gussied them up a little bit. Right. Mm. Um, but I don't think they just out and out made them up. Uh, if you've ever seen the movie um, His Girl Friday. Yes. With Rosalind Russell uh -huh. and Cary Grant. And there's that there's the scene of all the newspaper men in the room. That's what the newspaper business was like mm -hmm. back then. You've got the purple prose guys. You've got the mm -hmm. hard boiled guys. <laughs> That's what it was like. Mm -hmm. And in fact, if you look at that movie, remember, there's the scene where Rosalind Russell is interviewing Earl and he's in the cage mm -hmm. in the jail. Where did they get that from? The candy kid who was in a oh, cage. Oh, yeah. And he was in the jail. That's right. And, mm -hmm. and that's the kind of thing that I saw and continue to see in so many mm. gangster movies of the 30s and 40s about the 1920s is they pluck little elements. No one ever did a movie just about Tiger Girl and Candy Kid because, mm -hmm. of course, they would have had to pay Tiger Girl for her life yes. rights. Oh, True. yeah. Didn't think of that. That's why, mm. that's why the Edgar G. Robinson movie about uh, Al Capone is called Little Caesar and not the Al Capone story because they oh. would have had to pay mm. the Capone gotcha. family huh. or, or Al Capone for the life rights. So they mm. just changed the name. But um, I cannot watch a movie from that time period now <laughs> and not see Echoes. Oh, and sure. Mark Hellinger, who was one of the big reporters, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, he was the producer for the Roaring Twenties. He was involved in so many gangster films, either as a screenwriter or producer in the in the 30s and 40s. And you see little drips and drabs of Tiger Girl and Candy Kid in all of them. Hmm. Yeah, you mentioned a lot of that in your book. And I thought that was good, too, because you uh, mentioned the rest of the gang, like you were saying, you talked about them and, and their lives afterward. And it was just really good because you, it wasn't just about uh, Tiger Girl and Candy Kid. It was about the whole thing. You know what I mean? It, it made they obviously were part a large part of the story. So it was really good that you did that. And I'm probably also, when I read different things and see different things, I'm going to be thinking the same thing. Like, no, I know about that. I know where they got that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you can imagine what it was like for me as I'm kind of reading the reporting at the time. And I'm just, you know, my brain is firing off and I'm making these connections, <laughs> all this stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and Very I, don't exciting. Think I, was plucking, I don't think I was plucking it out of the sky. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. You know, I'm old enough that like, you know, when I was growing up, all I watched were old black and white movies, you right. know, mm. um, you're in Columbus, Ohio, you're in, in Westerville, mm -hmm. there was a, a show on the local channel 10, mm -hmm. uh, WBNS, mm -hmm. called, the, called Flippo, and it was hosted by a clown, a very mm. acerbic, wisecracking <laughs> clown, mm -hmm. who was not meant for children, but from <laughs> four to six, every afternoon, all they showed were old movies. Yeah. That's where I saw the Maltese Falcon. That's uh -huh. where I saw the Roaring Twenties. I'm talking like when I was 10, mm -hmm. you know, like every afternoon, a two hour black and white movie from the thirties right. or forties. And, um, you know, you don't have that awareness of, mm. unless you're really into it, you're watching Noir Alley with Eddie Muller. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't have that awareness of that now, mm -hmm. but it was exciting for me. I'm just going like, I've seen that scene. I'm reading <laughs> I've seen that scene. I've seen that scene. 
but none of those movies had been made. So where'd they come from? Right. Mm-hmm. True. Right. Right. Yeah, that has a whole yeah. new level to everything then. Mm-hmm. And yes. uh, speaking of uh, when you did your research, I know that uh, you and I spoke about it at the convention, but um, do you mind talking a little bit about how COVID affected your research? Yeah, I mean, it. <clears throat> fortunately, I had most of it done. Um, there were some things that I wanted to, I'd planned to look at, like, I think I could have gotten his um, Richard's records from, he was in the Elmira Reformatory mm. from the archive in Albany, but I couldn't get there. And, um, you know, there were a few things like that, but I'd done most of it. I would have liked to have gone back to Baltimore one more time. I mean, I was there once for, for a week, mostly in the library. I would have loved to have gone there for, you know, three or four days and just drive around and see something. I mean, the great thing is you can like find an address and look at it through Google Earth. Oh, right. yeah. You know, I've, I've looked at Margaret's house where she mm. lived the rest of her life. Wow. Um, but I w- really, would have li- really would have liked to have seen it myself. In fact, I, I sent somebody, even though I found Richard's grave on Find a Grave, which is a great website. Yes. If you've never used it, <laughs> yeah. but it's great. And, and I found Richard's grave on Find a Grave, or I had somebody find it. Mm-hmm. And then I actually sent a friend of mine who lived down there. I want you to confirm that there's nothing there. That oh, they wow. actually took a picture. I didn't get to go there myself. Mm-hmm. But but the, the, the real impact was when I was trying to get photographs and none of the archives were open. Mm. And I was lucky in that the University of Texas uh, in Austin, uh, which had the New York which has incredible archive, not just about Texas, but they had the New York Journal American archive and they had some photos. And before the pandemic, they had sent me iPhone photographs of the photographs they had. (laughs) Because of the pandemic, they could not reproduce those Mm. photographs. Mm. Fortunately, he had taken pretty good iPhone photographs. So I was able to take those photographs because they have to be certain DPI. Right. So I'll take those photographs, print them out myself, then scan them at the appropriate DPI and they were still good enough. Um, and then the other one that was really fun was I was Getty photos. They own almost every old archive. Mm-hmm. And I had some photos I bought off eBay and my publisher was like, you don't have the rights to them. I said, well, I own them. Yeah. And they said, well, you don't have the rights to them. Getty owns the rights to those photos from those archives. And I said, well, Getty has what they have. And I contacted Getty. They didn't have the photos that I had, which was good. Mm. So those were mine. I could wow. print them because those, those um, photo services were down. But mm. they, Getty also has things that aren't on their website. And they have the photos of the Bettman archive, which was one of the great historic photographic archives that exists. The Bettman archive is stored 200 feet underground, like 90 miles outside of Pittsburgh in a salt mine. And I schmoozed (laughs) the delightful young woman who's Puerto Rican, who lives in Chicago, who is working from home, who works for Getty, and she contacted their archivist who was intrigued enough that they made their way into the archive at 90 miles out, 200 feet down, wow. and looked. And lo and behold, they had a trove of like a dozen pictures mm-hmm. of Margaret and Richard. 
That's and amazing. Some of those are in the book. Yeah. So that was, I mean, I could have filled it up with other photos, but they had some that were really nice. The ones I found online were like pictures of the crowd outside the prison, mm -hmm. pictures of the funeral. Um, and that great picture, which is my favorite in the book, uh, two of my two of them are my favorites. One is the picture of Margaret, where she looks so young and so beautiful mm -hmm. with the feather coming out of her hat. But the other one is where she's striding out of the prison with her sister-in-law and her brother-in-law, dressed to the nines. Yep. Mm -hmm. Two days before her husband's hung. And mm. what what kind of coat was it? Did you say it was like a squirrel? squirrel? Well, yeah, the, the coat she wears all the time. That's the squirrel coat they bought. That's what after it was. The squirrel, yeah. Brothers yeah. Heist. I have that. I have that picture. Yeah. yeah. Squirrel, squirrel coat. coat. <laughs> yeah. That, you know, somebody said, How many squirrels did it take? Right? I said, you know, that's <laughs> that, a nice that, coat. There's like, yeah. there's like, you know, 200 squirrels in that. And, uh, and, and people don't mm. realize squirrels were actually sort of rare back then mm. because oh. they'd been overhunted. Mm. Oh, so that it makes wasn't sense. easy to get that huh. many squirrel balls. wow who knew i mean <laughs> seagulls were almost extinct at one point too and mm. they, they've come back yeah <laughs> i mean this the crazy stuff you learn when you're doing this oh sure like, right well oh, that's part no of the squirrels for a while <laughs> and that's part of the great thing about it is you don't just learn about what you're researching you learn all kinds of stuff yeah oh. <laughs> that's right and, and that's you know when people say why do you write a book it's like you become curious about something mm -hmm. i just came across this headline Tiger girl and a candy kid. Who the f are they? <laughs> right. you know? Yeah. I'll read this story. Yeah, let's oh, find that's out. That's kind of interesting. Is, is there another one? I mm -hmm. should be researching this other book, mm -hmm. uh, which was the young woman in the sea about Gertrude Ederly, who swam the English Channel in mm -hmm. 1926. Um, but I'll read about this instead. <laughs> and there's another story and another story, mm -hmm. and you realize that there's a lot there. Mm. Yeah. And you just get curious. I mean, that's that's mm -hmm. the fun part about what I do is I get to indulge these strange, <laughs> uh, you know, curiosities that you develop when you you look at a lot of microfilm or you look at mm. a lot of uh, now more so newspapers on uh, online, but they're mm. from the microfilm. Yeah, and that's actually a perfect segue because uh, I wanted to talk about your writing in general and other things you've done. So mm -hmm. my experience with you was, of course, at uh, crime con with tiger girl and candy kid so when i went to glenstout.com and i looked at your about page and your uh, bibliography i don't know um i noticed that you mostly write about sports which kind of surprised me and that you even do some juvenile literature and from from 1986 until you did it full-time in 1993 i did notice that things were peppered in there like in 2006 you did nine months at ground zero about the world trade center bombing Mm -hmm. And then you just mentioned the young woman in the sea and then tiger girl and candy kids. So I think it's really interesting that amongst these sports books, you have these historical type things. So I think, I think that's really, yeah, because I've always been, yeah, I've always been interested in other things. I mean, I, I kind of started doing the sports books because um, I was working at the Boston public library and stumbled across a story uh, about why the red about the Red Sox manager killing himself in 1906. Mm. I do have a morbid streak, so I'm like, oh, suicide. Interesting. <laughs> we obviously do as well. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, and and true crime has always been like a dirty little pleasure. Mm. You know, Christmas time, everybody mm. else is like, you know, singing Christmas carols and everything. No, I'm curled up with like, you know, some fat 
true crime paperback. It's like, <laughs> mm-hmm. this is ghost great. stories. I don't like, about anything else. Yeah, ghost stories <laughs> from Dickens' <laughs> era and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm reading like, you know, some horrible murder somewhere. Mm-hmm. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I'd stumbled across this story. They said he killed himself because of the pressures of managing. And I was really into baseball. I've always been really into baseball. I said, well, that makes no sense. There should be a whole graveyard of managers who killed themselves because of the pressures of managing. Mm-hmm. And I started looking up the old stories. I'd never done this before, looking them up on microfilm. And a big library like the Boston Public Library has not just the, the known Boston papers, the Boston Globe, but the eight or nine papers that were being published at the time. And long story short, I figured out why he killed himself. I'd never written... Um, except from high school when I was on the high school newspaper, I'd never written an, uh, a feature story, but I pitched it to a couple of magazines, Boston Magazine, the City Magazine of Boston. It so happened the editor was an old baseball guy. Hmm. He, he brought me in, he talked to me. I had no clips, I had nothing. He bought the story on spec, meaning like, if you write a good story, I'll buy it. He bought it, hmm. said, what do you wanna do next? So I, I haven't been without an assignment. I just kept on writing sports history, mm. ended up writing some very big, very involved, very successful sports histories. But the process um, is the same. Mm-hmm. And when I came across like the story of Gertrude Ederly, uh, the first woman to swim in the English Channel, it was the same process mm-hmm. that I came across Tiger Girl. I was researching a baseball book and I saw all these headlines about Gertrude Ederly. And I'd done a fair amount of sports history and a fair amount of women's sports history, and I'd never heard of her. Hmm. And I was like, why not? So I started researching that and no books had been written about her. Hmm. And I thought, this is a book I wanna do. And it was still sort of sports. I mean, it is sports right. Right. Uh, in a way, but it's the exact same process. I tell people, you know, when I was doing all the sports history books, it's you know you're doing like tiger girl and somebody gets shot well okay but if you read 10 stories about how somebody gets shot you have a cinematic scene about how they get shot Mm -hmm. what happened before what happened after how people were dressed what they said how they got away it's no different from writing Mm -hmm. about a double play in the world series and it's like okay it's a double play in the world series but if you read 10 accounts of it you found out that the shortstop bobbled the ball that the, that the mm-hmm. f- first baseman stretched out, that the, the runner argued with the umpire, that the crowd started throwing things on the field, <laughs> and all of a sudden you have a, have a picture. Mm-hmm. And, um, you, you know, so it's, it's, it's really no different. Mm-hmm. And because I had intersected in the sports books so many times with the 20s and had also been concerned with context, I was not, and the Ederly book too, which takes place in the 20s, mm-hmm. I was not unfamiliar with the context. And as it also so happens, one of my jobs when I was at the library was to spearhead a program that was the microfilming of old newspapers. Mm. Um, so I was keenly aware of the information that's in there. Um, I think from that first story, I realized that very few people were willing to sit in front of microfilm readers mm. for as long as I was. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was great because I could go in there when I was still working there. I'd go in at like six or 7 a.m. Mm. and do two or three hours worth of research 
on my own before anybody else came in the library and you know forged this writing career from that kind of material um so i was really lucky in that way but and and then you know i remember when everything started to be digitized i thought oh everybody's going to be doing this you know mm. my specialty is gone and it's the exact opposite because now no one wants to look at microphones. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they, yep. they want it online. Yep. And if it's not online, they're not going to bother to look. Mm. When I went to Baltimore uh, to research, the two most important papers were the Baltimore Post, the Baltimore News, neither of which are available online, both of which have been microfilmed. Mm. I was in the microfilm room <laughs> at the Enoch Pratt Library in Baltimore for a week, and no one else used microfilm wow. in the library. Mm for that one week period. And I, could, and I knew right then, because I'd been paranoid for 15 years, that somebody else is gonna find this story. I'm sure, yeah. And <laughs> right, I knew right, right then, yeah. And I knew mm -hmm. right then when I was in the library that nobody had, because uh, those boxes of microfilm were covered with dust. Oh, wow. And in mm -hmm. one of those papers is where I found, I, I sort of knew it existed, but I wasn't sure, was the 15,000 word Richard Whitmore biography that hmm. he had written and sold to the paper. Oh, wow. Which was just a fountain of knowledge. <laughs> There's and a cat. Nobody else had looked at it. Hey, cat. Oh, yeah. And nobody, a black cat, of course. Oh, right? yeah. <laughs> but nobody else ever looked at it. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. Well, um, I think that's the, uh, just lucky that way. That's the, the key is that doing that research is a lot of work. I mean, you have to be mm -hmm. really dedicated. And like you said, it was years worth and not everybody has that level of dedication or even has that level of time right. that commitment. So um, thank yeah, you. Yeah, I'm really lucky that, that I've had a, a writing <laughs> career now for 30 years. So mm, you know, this is what I do basically full time. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it is, but you know, I also did it for a number of years when it wasn't full time and I, uh -huh. what do you, how do you do it? Well, you know, and I had an infant daughter and I, hey, you get up really early. Yeah, <laughs> make it happen. Sometimes <laughs> you stay up really late mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. you work weekends. You don't go on vacations and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, uh, I'll warn you, you're in trouble now because there's been a couple times when I've been doing research and like, there's like nothing on this. And sometimes it's not even that long ago. I'm like, mm -hmm. why is there nothing on this? This is really interesting. But I think it's partially, sometimes it's in a different country mm -hmm. and, you know, everything, you know, all bets are off in other countries, you know, and. Um, well, the other thing too, is that, is that with the, the, the shrinking of the number of newspapers mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the coverage that they give now, is it will be harder to recreate a crime that takes place in 2021 than it is to recreate a crime that took place in 1921 hmm. because there's not the newspaper coverage. Right. You hmm. may, may have police reports and things like that, but 40 years from now, are those gonna be preserved? Hmm. Right. And yeah instead of eight or 10 newspapers reporting on an event, you might have, if you're lucky, one. Mm. And is it gonna give you enough information to be able to recreate that right. three-dimensional portrait? I don't point. think so. Right. Yeah. That's well, and then you I don't always, think so. And you always suffer from what isn't interesting enough. Yeah. You know, so right. is, is what they like, think the public wants. Right, right. And maybe they don't know it's interesting until then they realize it's a serial killer. And then you have to wait another 10 or 15 years to get yeah. all that information put together. So you have a complete story. Yeah. So yeah. It's, what was stunning to me in, in doing Tiger Girl was that all these 
like these heists before they knew that Tiger Girl and Candy Kid were doing them had been so reported on in the newspapers. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm reading, you know, stories that are, you know, 10 inches long about some jewelry heist from a Brooklyn newspaper that took place in Manhattan. And so once I found out that, oh, these were actually done by the Whitmore gang, I could recreate them because I had mm-hmm. enough information. You won't be able to do that yeah. 40 years from now with a crime that took place today because probably they won't even be reported on hmm. even once. And if yeah. you don't get a newspaper report or a trial transcript, oh yeah, true. And you know those are as limited in their own way as newspaper reporting is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You don't know what happened. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's sad. You know, as somebody who's into journalism and writing, it saddens me that the, of the decay of just sources mm-hmm. that that exist right now. Right. Um, yeah. You know, it's unfortunate. So nobody will be able to do what I did. I'll be dead and people say, how do you do that? Like, He's amazing. He's amazing. He, he made it all up. <laughs> he made it all up. Fake news. Yeah. Now, since, news, the pro- exactly. since the process is um, so similar, um, and I assume that you liked, it sounds like you liked the process writing the crime book. Is it something you want to dip your toe back into and write about anything else that you've come across or? Um, maybe. Um you know, I'm not, I'm really not quite sure. I mean, something has to like really intrigue me. Um, I've kicked around a few things, but uh, the, you know, the book business isn't healthy right now. Mm. And, um, you know, I don't know if I'll do another book. I mean, I, I really don't. Mm. Um, it takes a lot of time. It takes yeah. a lot of effort. And yep. if the return isn't there financially as part of it, but also personally, right. if there's no market for it there, Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little less compelling. I mean, you know, fingers crossed, we've had some inquiries about, you know, film projects with Tiger Girl, which, you know, oh, great. would certainly, you know, help me, you know, decide to do another one. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but I'll, we'll see. To this point, uh, a lot of other stuff has been going on. I just have a new granddaughter. And, uh, oh, congratulations. You know, yeah, I was actually going to bring oh, that up yeah, here in a great. bit. Yeah. Great. My first granddaughter, so I wouldn't say new grand. Well, Aww. she's new. But she's the only one. Yeah. And uh, and we've got some responsibilities with her that mm-hmm. uh, has been great fun. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I'm not sure. I don't know if I want to put as much effort into it. I mean, mm-hmm. I I have to find the story because mm-hmm. uh, the sports book industry is dead right now. Mm. Oh. Really? Mm. The books that I like to write about sports, there's no market for them. Hmm. and i hope there's a market for these kind of true crime books yeah there's i'm not to be, sure if there is yeah you know there is for eric larson but i'm not him right? <laughs> um, <laughs> you're better uh, we'll you're see. better well well thank you for saying that but uh i'll take being a little worse and take his paycheck yeah <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure well maybe not i actually i wouldn't be able to do that i'd just you know do it my way but mm-hmm. you know but we'll see i mean it was uh I've always kind of wanted to do one. And, you know, this book had been in my craw for like 15 mm. years. Yeah. And, and uh, when I tried to do it the first time and nobody bought it, I got mad. And I yeah. was like, sure. I'm going to do it eventually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you did. And, and I did. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of vindication and gratification in that. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. So um, you had mentioned um, The Young Woman in the Sea. Um, it may become a Disney movie. Yeah, it's uh, it was optioned. It, the book did not sell when it came out, hardly any. Um, but sort of just by chance, uh, about six years ago, a guy named Jeff Nathanson, who was the screenwriter for a movie called uh, with a Leo DiCaprio movie, Catch Me If You Can. Yes. Uh, he came across he came across it and he optioned it, and uh, he's very well connected. And uh, Jerry Bruckheimer agreed to produce it. Wow! And for the last five or six years, it's been mm. sometimes closer than other times. I mean, mm. the metaphor is swimming the English Channel. You don't <laughs> get credit for it until you get on shore. Mm-hmm. And a couple of times, the 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 movie has been probably within a quarter mile. Mm. and mm. then got washed out to sea. Um, but uh, most recently, uh, Daisy Ridley has signed on to star in it. She wow. was in the last couple of Star Wars oh, films. Yeah. And Joachim Ronig, who, uh, a Norwegian director who did Kontiki, mm-hmm. which was nominated for Best Foreign Picture, has signed on to direct. Hmm. The last I heard was that um, they, we've sort of, they hope to be officially greenlit this summer. Mm. It's all but officially greenlit. Oh, but, good. And then start filming late this year, early next year. But mm. in Hollywood, nothing happens yeah, you don't know. until it happens. Right. Yeah. And I don't make any real money until they say mm. action. Right. When they do, you will know oh, because yeah. you will hear me. <laughs> you will hear me. Yes. You'll probably see the things I'm throwing in the air. Oh yeah. Um, um, <laughs> but it's with Disney Plus uh, right mm. now, and and they've been very nice to me so far. I've uh, read an early version of the screenplay, which is as respectful as it can be. Mm. Hollywood always has to change. Oh sure, right. right. Um, and and you know. And I've also been fooling around with doing a screenplay for Tiger Girl, just because oh, yeah. it's interesting for me. I've yeah. never done that before. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's that hard. I mean, there's a lot of things I've never done before, but I just mm. like, well, I'll make it sound like the other things that have been done this way. I mean, that's yeah. how I wrote my first story. It's like, yeah. I'll make it sound like all the other stories right. I've read. And <laughs> yeah, it's the same, the same basic formula. Six letters, just yeah. you know, make it sound that way. Oh, that sounds so, so uh, exciting. I mean, I yeah. Yeah, very yeah, exciting. Could be, could be. And for somebody, you know, I'm 62, my age, this would be like, great. I'm, I'm out of here. <laughs> I'm you know, out, yeah. Like, Hanging it up. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> 100 books is enough. And, yep. you know, I'll, wow. you know, sit with my feet up, you know. Oh, yeah. So, mm-hmm. um, we'll see. I mean, yeah. And I, and I hope that because of that, maybe that will help Tiger Girl. Right, right. And like yeah. I said, we've been probed by a lot of people. Nobody's mm-hmm. like made an offer yet, but. Yeah. Well, you never you know. know. Yeah. Yeah. You, maybe it'll piggyback off of that, like you said. Yeah. Well, exactly. You know, I mean, every book piggybacks. Every book you've done, the next book sort of piggybacks off mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, you know, if I hadn't had some success before, I probably wouldn't have gotten a deal for Tiger Girl. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So that that's how it all. Even though some of them were sports books and everything, but it's mm-hmm. the yeah. same process. Um, I do have a, a and question. it beats working. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I do have a question. I noticed when I was reading in your about you section that you had a minor in religion, 
And I was thought right. it was interesting because I've noticed you have done no books about religion. And is that, I mean, if it's personal, you don't have to talk about it, but I don't know. I was just curious. No, I'm just, you know, I've always been kind of interested in sort of out there stuff. And mm -hmm. I, I did certainly didn't want to take science or math in college. Mm. So um, <laughs> religion, <laughs> you know, Buddhism and things like that were kind mm -hmm. of interesting to me. And, you know, mm -hmm. I, we all are spiritual in our own ways and right it's just intrigue was just mm. intriguing to me i mean i was a creative writing poetry major in college yeah i didn't take journalism i didn't take uh i mean i took some history classes but i didn't take mm. history per se yeah um i'm just a curious person who likes to read mm -hmm. yeah i mean that's gotcha. pretty much explains most of how <laughs> i've ended up is that you know i like to read a lot mm -hmm. and um you know, that's, you know, if you can keep yourself interested through reading, you, you know, you learn a lot of stuff. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And you get interested, you get interested in more things. Oh, so, definitely. Although I will have to say, I'm, I'm working with a writer right now who's um, writing a memoir because I do some consulting with other writers yeah. on manuscripts or book proposals and things. And he's writing a memoir about finding, um, he lived in China for a couple of years and he pursued the true. Taoist masters mm, in China. That is interesting. Oh, wow. you know, guys who pick up boulders and break them in half. Oh. Through the oh, powers wow. of the mind. So, wow. you huh. know, I, I guess the religion thing is the religion degree is finally, you know. <laughs> yeah. The religion so, minor yeah. is finally paying off. You know, thanks, God. You know. Uh, um, Buddha, I think our, whatever. Thanks, universe. Uh, Vicky, uh, v Victoria, didn't our dad, didn't he minor in religion and he majored in philosophy? Yeah, I think so. I think, and yeah. I'm a minister. Right. Yeah. But, he yeah. was a minister? Yeah. yeah. Our dad was a. There you mm -hmm. go. See? Yeah, you know, but he but he minored in it. That's what I thought was always interesting. Yeah. Was philosophy was first. Mm -hmm. So right. you know, um, I think well, that's interesting. Kind of tells you he was a little bit more open minded. I think so. Well, it's also you know you look in the job listings and the philosophy <laughs> jobs are very few. That's Minister true. jobs are a little that's bit. That's true. Yeah, yeah, really. A little bit more. Yeah. So you yeah. know you're just trying to figure things out and help people, right? <laughs> Uh, that's the that's the plan. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then I also noticed that you play the Baron. Boron. Baron. Yeah, yeah, I knew I was going to say it wrong. I tried the, to look it up, but it's the 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 goat skin Irish drum. Yes, really. So how would you get into that? Because that's awesome. Uh, when I was writing Young Woman in the Sea, I promised myself that when it was done, I would give myself a treat. And uh, my family background is. My mother is from Newfoundland, Canada. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm Canadian citizen as well as US citizen. And a lot of my relatives up there play music and I wanted to learn to play the Bauron. I found an online teacher and I, because when I went to Newfoundland, I wanted to be able to play music with my cousins of oh. which I have 61 first cousins on that side. Wow. Uh, so I, I learned to play online. I later went to sessions. I've even, uh, I was even in a band for a while. Huh. Uh, playing the Balron. It's just, you know, that's some neat. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, and it's fun. And sure enough, I got to go to Newfoundland and play with my, uh, uh, my 61 cousins and my, mm. uh, my, he's now 85 year old uncle who, mm. who is a, one of the best fiddle players in Ottawa. Oh. Huh. And, um, you know, and you need something to do when you're writing all the time and working on a screen, you need something to do that's not that. Oh, right. Yeah. Definitely. Right. 
I don't usually go to when I treat myself, I go to goat skin stuff, but hey, that's great. No judgment. Well, you know, I I could have had the leggings, but I, you know, (laughs) but that had been done before, you know. You can say it's a family thing. That's all right. Yeah, Yeah, that's understandable. So, but I I do tell people who who want to write, I was like, you know, one of the advice I give is like, give yourself a day off the screen mm-hmm. every week. Oh, oh yeah. Like go, yeah. like I kayak and stuff like that. It's like, just turn yeah. it off and, yeah. and do something different. Recharge. Otherwise, otherwise it yeah. makes you crazy. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, I it know. doesn't even have to recharge. It makes you crazy. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's just get that. It's not recharging. It's to keep them going crazy. Oh, yes. Gotcha. Yeah. You know. So. Yeah, I know. Um, I, I play drums. So um, I had gone to a Celtic festival and I had seen somebody playing that. And I was like, oh, my God, that is so awesome. And I mm-hmm. consider, oh, yeah. for a brief time, I considered buying one. And who knows? Maybe I'll do something and I'll treat myself. If you, do, so the good skin. if you do, look up, look up. Her name is Michelle Stewart. Okay. She's on YouTube. She gives the best introductory lessons to mm. play in the Balron. And then you can join her course, which huh. I did, which is oh. how I learned to play. And I've actually met some people 10 years ago doing that who are still friends to this day huh. uh uh who i now just hang out with but we, we all learned how to play the bow run hmm. uh, through michelle stewart all right you'll find her she's all over the place on oh yeah nice uh, and it's and if you've played the drum before i mean uh you'll you'll do fine i mean i never i played trombone it hmm. didn't really doesn't really yeah a little <laughs> different doesn't yeah. really translate right. but, uh, <laughs> You know, yeah. I mean, I played trombone for the Hilliard High School marching band mm. was, you know, a long time ago. So. <laughs> Kathy, do you want to ask your question? Um, well, um, we've covered a lot of my questions, but I really just have a general one. Just um, when you do unwind, besides kayaking, going out, do you listen to podcasts? Do you listen to sports stuff? Or what is it that you like to do? Um, you know, I really don't listen to podcasts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I have mostly when I'm on them, um, <laughs> but you know, I, I don't, I read, um, that's sort of what I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I watch old movies and I read. Mm-hmm. Um, w- the only thing I'll say against podcasts is that I think it's affecting how people write books. There mm-hmm. are a lot, particularly the true crime field. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of books being done now that they don't find out who the killer is. It's all about the writer's journey through the story oh. and mm-hmm. and and then i and because that's why i think podcasts are like the ones that try to like serial or shit town mm-hmm. um it's almost like podcasts are the reporting that's done before you write the story yeah and then they never write the story yeah it's just i get the you story of the, i can see the that. story of the reporting Mm-hmm. And which is fine. I have no, no, no problem with that, but I think it's affecting the book market. And now they want stories where people are a character themselves in it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what's the other Becky Cooper is the author. And it was a big book last fall. I forget what it's called, but it's about a murder at Harvard. Mm-hmm. She doesn't really find out who killed somebody it's more about Harvard and it's more about why she was interested in it. And there's another one that just came out. Uh, the woman's last name is Dykstra. I haven't read it, mm-hmm. but it's the similar. It's not, she doesn't really find out who killed this person. 
but there's a lot of why she's interested in it right and and that's fine i mean with i think younger readers and writers who are more attuned to the internet which is so singularly based on the self right a lot of people write about themselves right about the eye Mm -hmm. um it's just impacting the books that Hmm. publishing is interested in the readers are interested in and that's fine i'm just not really interested in them Mm -hmm. you know i I want to find out who did it and why they did it Mm -hmm. i don't care why you're interested in it right although Mm -hmm. all i've done here is talk about why (laughs) but that's yeah because i'm fascinating (laughs) that's why you're on (laughs) i mean you you guys know what i'm saying yeah 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 um And, and it's just, it's just, you know, as somebody who's, you know, I work with a lot of younger writers and everything, it's just an interesting thing that I've noticed mm-hmm. over the last five to 10 years mm. um, that, that really didn't exist before. There used yeah. to be, it used to be, uh, you had to justify writing about yourself into a story. Right. That you had yeah. to be needed, necessary mm-hmm. to it. Now you don't really need to be necessary to it. And I actually have some younger writer friends who I think have screwed up their own books because mm. they wrote too much. They wrote about themselves. Oh, yeah. And, you know, mm-hmm. I'm fascinated by me mm-hmm. uh, and everybody is fascinated by themselves, but other people aren't necessarily fascinated. So you think it's like I mean, it become an expectation for the the new generation, so to speak? Well, because they because the put themselves yeah, because, in it because Instagram and everything else. Yes, and because the editors who are controlling what being what's being published now are from that generation, and mm. they expect it. Gotcha. Uh, I mean, could you imagine what the book Tiger Girl of Candy Kid would have been if instead of telling their story, I'd have told my story of researching them? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I got you. It's kind of like burying the lead. Maybe it's a bestseller. Yeah. But, you know, (laughs) I I wouldn't have been interested in doing that. Right. I don't don't want to write anything about myself, quite frankly. (laughs) I know enough about me. I don't want to. It's the story that you wanted to tell. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm more in favor of books where, and writing in in general, where where you don't notice the writing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Where the story is in the forefront. Mm-hmm. And now there's this this other thing that's being done, and I don't know if it'll kind of flame out or whether it will take hold. It's it's mm. just interesting. Yeah. And I mean, you see it at CrimeCon too. There's a, a lot of presentations and 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 about books and and even you know the podcasts. They're all about the search. Right. They're mm-hmm. not about what actually happened. Huh. Right. Well, you know, I wonder because I think that I'm a little guilty of this too is because for me is when I when my boyfriend suggests that I do a podcast because I was researching serial killers and stuff anyway because I was planning on writing a musical but that's a whole other thing um <laughs> you know gotta kill you know, gotta right. kill <laughs> singing in the blood um yeah. so um is I said the only reason I do a podcast is if it was something different because there's so many out there and especially mm-hmm. about serial killers is you have to find something different and you have to decide what about me will be interesting to people. Mm-hmm. And so my take was that I haven't really heard a podcast about serial killers where they compare things, where they yeah. actually compare the serial killers. And what I specifically like to do is as I started to get into the researching is I would read one book and then I'd read another book 
and it would be crazy the things that are different. Yeah. And then um, and then you'd start researching and you'd be like, where did this paper get this? I only saw in this one paper that they said this one thing and it was never mentioned anywhere else. Mm-hmm. So then to me, it did become as much about what is not being said or right. the differences in what's being said. Mm-hmm. So to me, I think part of the problem might be like everything's been done. So maybe it's an element of, well, now I need to think of something new and different. And maybe no one has that I've seen, <laughs> no one has had this take on it. And so right. I bring well, it, you know, so I think that there's, but there's a way to do that. And the problem is, is, is if you're young and not don't have as much experience, but you're excited is that's a lot of it is this is how I feel about things. So but right. you run into the, everybody should care what I think because I'm excited. Right. Yeah. Well, I think one of the lessons I learned from writing about sports is that I discovered that I could write about something that everybody knew about, but because everybody knew about it, nobody had really looked at it very mm. closely. Mm-hmm. So I could look at things that everybody knew about and inevitably, every single time, I would find something that, you know, this didn't happen that way. Mm-hmm. There was a lot more to the story mm-hmm. um, just because of the kind of research I was doing. Mm-hmm. I think somebody could go today. I mean, who's written about more than anybody? Probably Ted Bundy. Mm. There is no doubt in my mind you could go to Ted Bundy today, research it from the ground up, and find and blow everybody else out of the water because everybody assumes that they know everything right and that everything else has been done and what you often find is that nobody has really done that work from the ground up mm-hmm. or True. they come at it with an agenda so that's one thing that i right. got with the uh, with reginald christie is mm-hmm. that um the primary um movies and books that are quoted were based on an anti-death penalty agenda so yes. they took the the story from okay let's ha- let's see instead of looking at things like impartial is let's look at it how how can we prove that this guy was guilty mm-hmm. and then they purposely leave things out and right. so right. When I went back and um, read uh, more and it blew my mind that you know and even even when you start reading about the actors in the movie they're like oh yeah you totally can't look at this as as, as based in fact but the beginning of the movie says. This is based, based on, on fact. True story. We yeah. Use actual like court transcripts. Mm-hmm. And so they Just totally painted that way. Right. Yeah. yeah. The facts, facts we exactly. to portray. There's yeah. no question that somebody could look at Tiger Girl and Candy Kid and tell it an entirely different story. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because you do have to make judgments along the way, mm-hmm. like the bank heist in Buffalo. Mm-hmm. Okay. He was found innocent. Um, I'm 99% sure that they did it. Mm-hmm. Somebody else could look at it and they want to probably decide that he didn't because, you know, he was the only one charged. Um, you know, there's a, it's, you know, a lot of circumstantial stuff there. Um, that's one thing, but, but, you know, you can always go because quite frankly, I don't think most of the people do the work. Right. I don't care what you're talking about, mm-hmm. whether it's baseball. And the interesting thing about baseball is there are these crazy people that just research Complete baseball. subculture, yeah. I'm, oh, you know, yeah. you know, you write a baseball book. If you say somebody hit 303 in 1934 and he hit 302, they'll send you a 10-page. Oh, you'll hear about it, oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, 
Uh, I don't know if it's quite the same way in the true crime world, but but in baseball, it's like you're you're petrified of these people because they're mm. they're late, they're waiting for you, you know. Yeah, um, it, it's a, it's the same everywhere. If you mention yeah. a special weapon or a gun and you say it wrong or yeah. Same yeah, I have to admit that I was listening to a podcast and they said that uh, the BTK killer raped and I turned it off because the BTK killer did not rape. And if you get that wrong, mm -hmm. and that's a major thing is, you right. know, so, and I think it depends because you have, you have your, and I think this is one reason why research has become so prominent for me is because we're in a time period where someone can literally look at a headline and share it on Facebook. They sure. won't read the article. They don't right. double check things. They'll say, oh, look, this person said this thing. And you'll say, who is that person? Oh, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Right. Oh, and they're right. an authority because you, you know. So I think that this is why it's so important and why I really focus on it so much in my episodes and in my work mm -hmm. is to just reiterate to people, it is important to research. Yeah. And oh, yeah. the grand irony is we have all this knowledge and it's mm -hmm. not really being tapped into is it's made yep. us lazier or, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it's, it's a weird, well, if you can't find it online it, easily, it doesn't exist. Right. Right. Yeah. You're not going to bump into anyone at the microfiche. You're not. Yeah. <laughs> like you've seen. So yeah. Right. You know, yeah. It's just not going to happen that way, but, but, you know, and then also with the, just sort of the collapse of both journalism and the book business, there's, you know, fewer journalism sources, there's fewer books being done and things like that. The opportunities there are incredible because so mm -hmm. much isn't being written about. Right. At mm -hmm. all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You yeah. Know, that's, that's, you know, I have a lot of younger writer friends, and they can't get jobs now, you know, mm -hmm. and they can't play stories now. Mm -hmm. And the sad thing is, is that so many stories are just no matter what they're about are not being written about right are not right. being written they're right. not being told mm. you know uh, and now everybody you know everybody was doing podcasts now everybody wants to do documentaries mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you yeah. know and that means well even fewer stories are going to be told mm -hmm. you know because right. it takes a lot more to do a documentary than a podcast mm. uh, you know it's just it's just yeah. uh it's a it's a transitional let's put it this way a transitional time for the information industry. And the only thing I can tell anybody that makes any sense whatsoever is that the only constant in this from time immemorial is that it always changes. Right, it right. A change. And uh, yeah, no, I was about to say that. Is everything cyclical? Mm -hmm. It has its rhythms and- It always changes. Mm -hmm. And you know, what doesn't work today might work tomorrow mm -hmm. and it might swing back and um, you know, I recently read a, a book, which is, I think, kind of a classic of, of narrative nonfiction that could never be published today, simply because they would say, oh, it's too long. Mm -hmm. Nobody would be interested in this topic. What are you crazy? Mm. Um, and those books aren't being done right now. Right. But mm -hmm. people will get tired of, you know, mm -hmm. the way things are done now, and then it may swing back. Um, right. I hope so. Yeah, uh, but I'll be too old. Somebody else will be. Doing <laughs> well, but that's why it's also important for things like this is where it's word of mouth is important. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, oh. is is spreading the word and and, you know, hopefully getting that out there. And, and that does that can make, you know, some kind of difference. So that's yeah, why because, that because, uh, mm -hmm. you know, like in the book world, book reviews don't mean what they once did. Mm. Um, you know, I don't know how you promote books now. You do things like this mm. and they help. Mm -hmm. uh, but book reviews, I got in the New York Times, I don't think it sold a book, tell you the hmm. truth. 
Hmm. Um, you know, 10 years ago, that was the gold standard. Right. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I don't know what sells books right now. Um, hmm. Quite frankly, I, I, I really don't. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, don't ask me. I'm, I'm <laughs> you know, trying as hard as I can. But, um, but I think, yeah, I mean, word of mouth has always been the best. Mm-hmm. And then you hope you get to somebody's mouth Mm. that's really loud right <laughs> and that people really and that people pay yeah. attention to. and then we'll exactly. buy yeah we'll start buying yeah increasing you the know, sales if, yeah uh, you know if kim kardashian buys my book tomorrow and puts it on instagram i'll have a bestseller mm-hmm. that's how crazy or mm-hmm. or if a 14 year old girl puts it on book, <laughs> tiktok uh, or something prize, yeah right mm-hmm. if you know a 14 year old girl who mm-hmm. will take a bribe <laughs> and talk about my book and cry you know, send her to me. Okay. Because apparently that's how it's done now. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a whole other thing. girl to cry about your book and mm. put it on TikTok, you have yeah. a bestseller. <laughs> I mean, but... But, you know, they were saying the same stuff in different ways. Yeah, it's every generation and every time period has its, its struggles right. and it's, you know, strange, you know. Um, but we appreciate all the work that you've put into this. Yes. Well, yeah. You know, it's really... Uh, gratifying to me when people are enthusiastic about something I do uh, no matter how big the platform is or anything like that mm-hmm. um, because it is as you said it's enthusiasm and it's like word of mouth mm-hmm. and you know tell all your friends and you know buy friends and make right. them buy friends and yeah you know, yep. but but, but mm-hmm. that's how it works because you know I look back at like the Edderly book and I have no idea how Jeff Nathanson came across my book mm. which sold like 5,000 copies mm-hmm. mm. and he came across it almost 10 years after it had been published wow huh. mm. how does that happen I don't know yeah, yeah. you know it's crazy um but you know but if that ever happens then as it deserves Trudy Utterly's story will be known Mm-hmm. all over the world and it'll be her voice and not your voice and that's right. what People, and that's what's important and that's what's important mm-hmm. except mm-hmm. that the check comes to me <laughs> right <laughs> of course yeah yes of course of course but, but no but really it's like that that you know you get this story that's you know empowering mm-hmm. and important that yeah. can change people's lives stories change people's lives yeah that's why we that's why we respond to them they right. change our lives and and this is what i tell everybody everything about this all the time we do it for two reasons one it changes lives in ways large and small Mm -hmm. okay anytime you read something or hear something it changes your life in a way that might be large or might be small and it's only through stories that we get to know each other until Mm -hmm. you start telling stories to a stranger Mm -hmm. they remain a stranger right once you start telling stories they're no longer strangers Mm -hmm. okay Mm -hmm. that's how we connect as human beings Yep. And that is, um, that justifies it. Mm-hmm. That's why we exist. Yep. Know each other, right? Right. Yep. Right. And the world gets a little bit smaller and a little mm-hmm. friendlier. And, uh, you know, we don't hit each other with sticks. And, yeah. We're all <laughs> and connected. Each other, you know? mm-hmm. Yep. Um, yeah. uh, you know, maybe, you know, BTK needed to like know more people. <laughs> 
who tell stories. <laughs> mm, that's, a little, that's a little glib, but it's to, de- you know, mm-hmm. we don't want to have all that distance between right well and that is a big big reason why a lot of serial killers um come to be is because they have they don't have a personal connection right there was a there was a brokenness of the the way they grew up i mean there's there's usually it's what i think uh i've heard it called like a soup it's a soup Mm -hmm. of things that build serial killers Mm -hmm. the common thing is broken families yeah and you know and and honestly i want to say when people are like well how do you stop serial killing well just be nice to your kids be you know yeah, be just, present just be a good parent be part of it <laughs> yeah like that, that doesn't hurt yeah it does know? not so yeah. i mean um but i think uh, what you just said is a great way to end the episode so i mean if there's anything else you want to throw out there um go well, ahead but... great I, I i you know I've, I've loved having kind of a freewheeling discussion talking about it it's been a lot of fun good. and uh different different from the other podcasts i've done oh that's i've really enjoyed this i you know, enjoyed meeting you guys. And, uh, you know, this was fun too. Yeah. Uh, you know, continued success. Uh, hope a zillion people listen to you. You know, <laughs> they will I now. Hope I sell a zillion yes. books. We'll, yeah. we'll meet in the zillionaire club. All right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get you those know, squirrel coats there. matching. <laughs> yeah. Squirrel coats, you know. Yeah. You know, unless I punch you in the face and steal that's, your diamond. That's right. Yeah, and then I should have seen it coming. It's my <laughs> right, fault. Exactly. Exactly. That's what you get for being the guy in a book. That's right. right. <laughs> well, thank so, you so much. This yeah, has been we really, really great. Good. I'm kind of bummed you don't live closer because I'd love to just go grab a beer with you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So it's not hard. Yeah, if I'm ever in the area. If you're buying, it's not hard. All right, that's right. I will, She's it's buying, all yeah. on me. That's the thing. That, but thanks again. Shoot me a link when yes. this uh, Oh, definitely. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'll push it out uh, as much as I can on the various social medias that I'm inept at, uh, which is all of them. Uh, but uh, I'll do what I can. We still appreciate that it. Great. Yeah, um, okay. I plan on coming out with it on Monday. So I'll, I'll let you know. I'll send you the link and everything. And Okay, terrific. And, well, you know, thank you careful. very much. And be careful in Westerville, Kathy. Yes, you know, I, I know they're finding bodies at Alum Creek. And no, really? Just, yeah, they found a bot. Oh, it's a whole thing. Listen to my episode and you'll hear <laughs> all about it. Okay, so you hooked me right there. There it's you like, go. Uh, it's nothing the, gets me like death in Columbus. You know? There you go. And the Cracker yeah. Barrel, the last one was the death at a Cracker Barrel from the guy who uh, did a water-powered car. Well, I know when I go to Cracker Barrel, <laughs> it makes me want to kill. So. Just don't get the cranberry juice is all I'm going to say. Yeah. But you'll have to listen to find out why. <laughs> okay. Well, I thank will. You. Okay. Right. Yay. <laughs> well, thank you very much. And uh, you enjoy the rest of your evening. Okay. You thank, guys you. Mm-hmm. Bye. thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the episode, and I hope you enjoyed our interview with Glenn. We certainly did. As you can tell, I laugh all the time. <laughs> I get very excited. Real fast, um, I realized that I forgot to give a quick background of Glenn. You can find it at glenstout.com. But real fast, just so you know, as a full-time author since 1993, since beginning a freelance career in 1986, Glenn Stout has written, ghostwritten, or edited nearly 100 books representing sales of almost 3 million copies. As an editor and consultant, Glenn Stout has periodically consulted with authors on book proposals and manuscripts that have been published by major trade publishers, ghostwritten books with non-professional authors, and has served as editor for numerous award-winning long-form journalism projects. Glenn has also served as a writing coach for private clients, given presentations to groups of editors, writers, and students about writing books, 
the writing process, and the editorial process he uses for long-form journalism. Glenn is available for a wide variety of projects, including book proposals, long-form features, ghostwriting, long-form editing, teaching, etc. See the editorial and consulting services page for more. Again, go to glennstout.com for more information. And as always, thank you for entering the lab. If you enjoy the experience and experiments of Murder Lab, go to Facebook, Instagram, and murderlabmedia.com for updates. Share with your friends, those you created in a lab or not, as long as they can subscribe and listen, we'll take it. Murder Lab is available on Google Play and iTunes. The RSS feed is on MurderLabMedia.com for you to plug into your podcast app. We can always use more lab rats.